0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about the Saudi-Iran deal, which was signed two weeks ago in Beijing, and what it tells us about the future of the Middle East, but even more importantly, what it tells us about China's ambitions as a global peacemaker. The announcement of the Chinese broker deal between the long-feuding Saudi and Iranian governments took many observers by surprise, especially in the West. How significant is the deal really? What consequences will it have for the wider region? And what does it tell us about China's role in the changing global order? We have an all-star cast to help us make sense of this, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Cinzia Bianco, and Andrew Small. Julian is the director of ECFR's MENA program. Cinzia is a visiting fellow at ECFR and an expert on the Gulf. And Andrew Small is uh, not just a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund, an expert on China, but he is the author of a fantastic new book, which has appeared in Europe under the title of The Rupture and in the United States called No Limits, and it looks at our emerging relationship with China. So before we start talking about China and the the details of the deal, maybe we should start with the politics of the region and why a deal was necessary in the first place. Julian, can you tell us a bit about the the background and um, and the state of Saudi-Iranian Relations obviously the rivalry can go back decades, but it was in 2016 that they broke off all diplomatic relations, and that's what the the deal is meant to be changing. Thanks
1: for having me on the podcast.
0: So, so look, yes, I mean, the, the ties between Riyadh and Tehran
1: have been hugely challenging over much of the last decade uh, relations formal relations were cut in in 2016 after i believe that the saudi embassy was stormed in in iran but essentially the two countries have been fighting a hot conflict through proxies across the region for, for much of the last decade. This has played out in Syria and and more, more pointedly in, in, in Yemen, where you've had an Iranian-backed Houthi movement that has been firing missiles on to Saudi Arabia. Both of the countries are, are, are key heavyweights in the region. They, they deploy resources, money, backing, arms to, to a wide range of groups. And, and this rivalry has, has proved hugely destabilizing. It's fed, it's fed these proxy conflicts. It's really meant that the region has been sucked into this destabilization Stabilizing cycle for, for for too long now. So this is a, a really significant breakthrough. These are the two the two heavyweights, and and without really a, a, a diplomatic track and a dialogue between the two, there's little hope of getting the the, the region on a better um, track. They've been talking now for a couple of years, and we can get into why that kind of dialogue was reinitiated, and that links into the role of the U.S. and then we we get to where China fits fits into that. But this is the formal roadmap. Uh, towards a, a re-establishment of ties. And it's the most kind of overt sign yet. The two players, as with many other actors in the region, now want to, to re-embrace um, de-escalation and dialogue and focus on economic priorities and domestic issues rather than regional rivalries.
0: Chinti, you've a lot of time in the Gulf, looking at the Gulf. What are the concrete benefits of this deal for, for Saudi Arabia in particular? What do they hope to to get out of it? What is actually going to be in this deal apart from opening embassies?
2: So it is, it, is, it is much more than opening embassies, if it goes the right way. Um, it's lovely to be back on the podcast to talk about um, this development, which really has a lot of potential. Um, the, from, from a Saudi point of view, the most interesting element is that Iran has committed to stop it, uh, the transfer of weapons to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And this is a thing that Saudi Arabia has been asking to Iran for years, really, since they first started talking through back channels um, and private conversations. And the Iranians had always uh, resisted this demand. Um, For Saudi Arabia, that uh, the Houthi threat was a really significant threat. I mean, at some point, they were intercepting dozens of ballistic missiles launched from um, Yemen into Saudi territory. Um, they would hit uh, a number of uh, um, civilian uh, objectives in the south. And um, in 2019, they managed to hit critical energy infrastructures, bringing offline 5% of the global energy production for a week until the Saudis were able to repair the damage done on Abqaiq and Khurais, the two um, oil production plants that were hit. So it's a big, big thing for the Saudis to finally be able to Um, move towards uh, um, removing this threat from their book, and especially now that they are so ambitious about their development plans uh, uh, in general.
0: So obviously, one of the reasons why this deal was possible, particularly with with China, is that both Saudi and Iran have got reasons uh, to want to to sideline and humiliate the, the US as much as possible. Julian, you kind of hinted um, at, at that earlier. Um, so maybe we should just talk a tiny bit about that. And then I'd love to hear from, from Andrew about how this fits into Chinese strategy and what role China really played. Because a lot of people have talked about how these, you know, these talks were not started by the Chinese, they've been managed along by the, by the Iraqis and the Omanis. Um, China maybe came late to the party. But it seems that both sides were pretty keen to get China involved.
1: So yeah, I, I think there's a few dynamics here. I mean, I think for the Saudis, you know, one of the lessons they learned from the, the the Iranian attacks, particularly on the oil infrastructure, is that the Americans wouldn't back them up any longer in the way they'd long seen to be the case. And, and that pushed Riyadh to, to internalize the need to to basically sort out their own security and, and, and opened up the pathway towards um, uh, dialogue with Tehran. In, in, in terms of the Chinese link for them, I think uh, there's a couple angles here. One, Look, the reality is is that the Americans have very little constructive leverage over the Iranians. The Saudis want um, to extract concessions from Iran; they want them to stop these this mus- these missiles. And the Americans may have a lot of coercive pressure over the Iranians, but they're unable to actually get them into a deal-making space at the moment. In the same way that the Chinese can, given their close economic and, and political ties to, to Tehran, so that was useful. I think the other interesting thing for the chi- for the Saudis vis-a-vis the Chinese is, you know, the, the, the Saudis are frustrated with the lack of of American backing for them. And I think there is a sense in Riyadh that actually this turn towards uh, Beijing is a means of trying to draw the Americans back in. The, the Saudis aren't fools to kind of the great game narrative and competition that's playing out in Washington, and they know that kind of the sense China is making inroads in Riyadh will, will resonate with the, the political crowd in Washington, and it may push the Americans to do more to push the Chinese out, and they want to exploit that to get the security guarantees from the Americans they still want. So the Saudis on that on, on one hand are playing that game. For the Iranians, using the Chinese to construct this deal is is, is I think a way of of trying to get around Western-led, mounting U.S.-led kind of pressure vis-à-vis their nuclear program, vis-à-vis their support for for Russia and Ukraine, vis-à-vis kind of domestic pression. Um, you know, the, the Americans have been tightening the screws. That's a sense of a, of a maximum pressure campaign re-emerging. And, and the Iranians are, are using the Chinese to make this deal with the Saudis in a way that, that suddenly diffuses this pressure. The the, Saudi, the Iranians are suddenly opening up regional tracks exactly as um, the Americans and others are, are, are trying to tighten those tracks. And, and again, the, the Chinese were a useful vehicle to make that a
0: reality. So Andrew, should we now look at China's role in all this, you've been looking at, at Chinese foreign policy for a long time and also seen how they've played on American presence and absence in different places, not least in Afghanistan, which you've kind of written about in the past and spent time on. Saudi, uh, sorry, Saudi and Iran have both you know, become increasingly dependent on China in economic terms. But this does seem to be quite a new role for, for China in the region, which goes way beyond being a big consumer of hydrocarbons.
3: Thanks, Mark, for the chance to join the podcast again. Um, so there's a few different things in play with, with uh, the Chinese dimension of this. Um, first of all is, as you posed uh, the, the, the question, uh, how important was China in actually closing the deal out? What role did it play that has kind of wider significance in terms of you know, really China as a as a peace broker that we could look to in other processes that's different from something we've seen before? Um, I will be interested to hear more from uh julian and 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 on on this question because from a distance certainly the impression was that uh, china was indeed late to the process um was asked of course to play the role that it played it's not the version of kind of peace brokering where we you know might imagine as as people were suddenly starting to do with with russia and ukraine um china kind of cajoling two reluctant parties to the the table and doing a lot of the heavy lifting. A lot of the work had already been done by the time they came in. There was clear utility for the two parties in involving China at the stage that they did, as as Julian has just uh, laid out. Um, And China, of course, was able to get a kind of political win from this. Not only were they able to position themselves as this kind of peace actor, but they were able to tie it specifically to Xi Jinping's new global security initiative when they announced um, the the agreement, Um, a global security initiative that is is kind of fundamentally about pushing back against the US alliance system, US hegemony in in the world. Um, So this was a kind of helpful reinforcing Uh, result for them to be able to demonstrate or at least claim that it was an early success for the initiative. But I mean, China's attempted to play brokering roles in plenty of cases before. I mean, you can go back to the Six Party talks uh, with North Korea. You can look at the role that China's played with Afghanistan. It's dabbled in this in the Middle East before with Israelis and the Palestinians. This was more serious. I I mean, they, of course, did actually get a result from it. Um, The fact that they were asked to come in and play the role that they did is not something that you would have necessarily seen in this way in the past. Um, And they have real stakes in this as well. They want to be able to simultaneously deepen relations with both the Saudis and the Iranians. Um, They've run into kind of political difficulties with that in the last period of time. It's been a complicated balancing act for them to be able to do this because these are among the partners in the region, um, particularly central and the attempts to really substantially expand economic financial and uh, in in certain areas, military and and intelligence ties with, with with both countries is obviously more complicated if you have the picture as it was. And I think they've also been convinced that the dynamics between Saudi Arabia and Iran were damaging to their energy security interests in the region as well. So they've had an interest in doing this that is political, that is about kind of wider interests, not just in the Middle East in deepening ties with both of them, but in their kind of attempts to build a bit more of a kind of block and network of friends and, and, and partners. And in the past, this is something they would have ducked. They they always punched below their weight um, in, in the Middle East. I mean, I think this is the interesting other dimension to this, whether we're starting to look at a bit more of a threshold crossing moment in terms of China being willing to step up and at least nudge certain developments in directions that are consonant with their interests. They've had the power in some respects to do some of these things before. They've deliberately kept their heads down on this um, in the past, this is very visible. They'll be associated with the success or failure of, of it, whether or not they're formally guarantors um, of the deal. So I, I think it's an interesting and significant moment, even if the actual utility of China's involvement, um, one one can debate. I think one can make a pretty good case that it could have been done um, without them, but I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear whether that's the assessment of colleagues as well.
0: So, be good to to look at some of these bigger questions around China, but before we do that, let's let's just dwell a bit more on the impact on the Middle East. The, the Iran Saudi conflict has not just been a, a nightmare for Yemen in the way that you were talking about earlier, but it you know it's it's entered to all sorts of of different theatres in Lebanon, in Iraq, in in Syria, in Afghanistan, in all sorts of different places. To what extent is this deal going to lead a kind of wider sense of de-escalation across the region? So
2: it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, much broader than um, than the immediate de-confliction between the two. Um, and, you know, certainly phase one seems to be quite limited in terms of um, making, you know, trying to, Uh, make sure that um, cross-border Houthi attacks into Saudi territory are stopped. And in exchange, the Saudis reopen uh, their diplomatic presence in Iran and possibly start talking about um, economic um, cooperation, investments and deals. But then again, you have a question mark there, which is obviously um, that um, the Saudis would also have to navigate um, sanctions imposed by the U.S. on Iran. Um, it's not sure which way and how they would approach that. Uh, that is obviously a very um, comfortable excuse for the Saudis to not to follow up and follow through on their promises and pledges of investments into Iran. Um, or you know they could also um, still go ahead with some ba- maybe smaller scale cooperation and and smaller deals. Um, and they have shown, with uh, you know the Western sanctions on Russia, that uh, if they understand, if they deem uh, that it, it is necessary to, in fact, circumvent and, and not comply with those sanctions, they will do. So um, it's, uh, but it, but it, but it is still uh, a, quite a limited scope, especially in phase one, which is um, uh, the next two months. So the month of Ramadan and the month after Ramadan, if that goes well, if those two months go well, then I think perhaps in phase two of this deal, then we would have the formal reopening of relations. And um, other dossiers may be discussed. Um, Perhaps uh, I'm thinking about Syria, the fact uh, that uh, there has been for some time a slow process of rapprochement uh, between uh, um, the Gulf monarchies, in particular the United Arab Emirates, and Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So that there might be something there, um, yeah. And uh, uh, and that's that still to, remains to be seen for phase two of the deal. If I may quickly on what and on Andrew's point before, whether this deal could have gone through without China's involvement, I think um, it's a big if um, because. The fact of the matter is that the talks had been stopped in April 2022 by the Saudis, who were really frustrated that they couldn't get ahead with you know, their main demand, which was related to Yemen, as we mentioned. And I think at that point, that's where they decided to bring China in, because as Julian was saying before, they, their assessment is that China, after you know, new Western pressure on Iran, new Western sanctions on Iran, um, uh, as you know, for punishment of Iranian uh, uh, military cooperation with Russia in Ukraine, and for um, the response, the, the crackdown on the protests by the regime internally, the Saudi assessment was that China had become the only economic lifeline for Iran. So that gave the Chinese a lot of leverage. And at the same time, the, the Saudis are also confident that um, they can, they, they uh, hold more strategic value for Beijing than Iran does. And so they were sort of thinking that the Chinese would be sensible to their strategic interests and at the same time in the position to nudge Iran towards accepting these concessions. I, I mean, it's it's tough to say whether that's accurate, but uh, the fact is that the, the impasse was overcome.
0: And. Julian, you've written recently about the the kind of dangers of of war returning to the Middle East. Israel is one of the other big actors involved in this. Before this deal was taking place, I think a lot of people... We're hoping that there might be a, a Saudi Israeli detente and maybe some kind of accord between those two countries. Other people have been worrying that Israel might strike Iranians' nuclear program now that it has got to so close to breakout capacity. How does this deal affect those sorts of dynamics?
1: Well, I mean, I think. The the main one of the main reasons for for the Saudis making this deal is to protect themselves from the the, the possible ramifications of of military action against um Iran. The Saudis know that. That if there are military strikes by the Israelis, by the Americans, by others, um, there's a good chance that the Iranians will retaliate by trying to strike out at kind of Arab Gulf energy installations to, to hit global energy prices. So this is a way to try and avert that outcome, to try and give themselves protection, um, given that they don't believe the Americans are prepared to step up. And I, I think it, you know, it does run counter to another kind of regional initiative or or, or kind of a competing initiative, on um, which is to try and cement a counter Iranian bloc within the region. Um, and that is something that the Israelis have been using the Abraham Accords, ties with other Arab states, you know, Netanyahu's back in office and, and very much trying to um, establish w- relations with Saudi. And this has all been about, you know, largely about trying to create a, a regional bloc that can can counter the Iranians. That possibility of a kind of zero sum black and white approach, I think does get diminished by by this deal. And, you know, it's not just the Saudis, the Emiratis, who also have relations with the Israelis, formal relations, have also been talking to the Iranians. So, you know, everyone is talking at the moment, apart from, of course, the the Israelis and the Iranians. That does leave the Israelis more, I think, um, regionally isolated in terms of potentially want to take action. But we also know very clearly that the Israelis are extremely concerned about what's happening in Iran on the nuclear front. Um, There are lots of talk about new military action. And and, and if that were to happen, it could easily derail these talks. Um, We also know that the Saudis are undoubtedly still talking to the Israelis, even with this deal. And the Israelis, the Saudis have made a tactical, I think, embrace of of Tehran here. This doesn't mean that they are strategically kind of embracing a kind of necessarily a new relationship with Iran. I think they still have big problems with Tehran. They don't like their regional behavior, their missiles, their, their, their nuclear behavior. So we shouldn't, kind of misread this deal for a kind of the, the outbreak of, of great friendship. And clearly the Saudis will still be talking to the Americans and the Israelis on how to continue squeezing Iran on, on some of these these files. So it's it's a fragile opening, it's tense, it kind of plays into and complicates some of these other tracks, Mark, but it's a it's a good sign on on one um dimension of, of regional kind of vulnerabilities and instability. But there are still a lot of other issues bubbling over, which could draw the Saudis and the Iranians back into mutual hostility.
0: Okay, so maybe we should pivot back out of the region again. Xi Jinping built on the uh, success on Iran-Saudi by looking at another theatre, he's uh, pushing further on his peacemaking efforts uh, in Ukraine. In Moscow for, for the last few days, meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin. He's going to be talking to Volodymyr Zelensky afterwards to cover off the other side of, of that discussion. How, Andrew, does this deal fit into a kind of wider sense of Chinese diplomacy now that party Congress is out of the way, zero COVID is over, and China seems to be re entering the world on various different dimensions?
3: Well, it was very helpful for Chinese diplomats ahead of Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow to be able to suggest that this was, you know, a part of a wider set of peace missions that um, Xi Jinping was now embarked on. Now we've actually had the trip to Moscow. Um, I think it was considerably thinner in peace content than I think we might even have been led to uh, believe before the trip. It was a pretty remarkable deepening. Um, of bilateral relations, um, the, the symbolism of of, of the, the way the meetings were were handled, the timing, the language Xi being used. Um, sometimes he can't be bothered to um, uh, pretend on on these things in the way that other bits of the Chinese system do. That uh, I mean, we 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 know, of course, that I mean, he's refused to speak to Zelensky for the last year, and um, that he values the relationship with um Russia, as a kind of critical strategic partner for China in its pushback against the United States he' just spent in the uh, the national people 's Congress um giving his speech about how china 's facing western encirclement containment um and we're 's really what the the trip to, to to Russia ended up um looking like it was it was far more about um, there needed to be a bit of political cover for it um in terms of the the phone call um, and uh, the uh, position paper, and it was really a position paper rather than a peace proposal. But I think some of us might have expected that there'd be something extracted, at least for the given how contentious this trip to, to Russia was, that there were even considerations that there might be a ceasefire proposal emerging or something of substance. So, so far, there's, there's really been very uh, little, and you didn't see Putin squirming in the way that you saw a little bit even in Samarkand uh, last year. This was a very kind of good spirited. Um, Bonhomie-type visit um, instead. So I think whatever people were expecting, um, and I I, I think, frankly, expectations that anything that went on between China, Saudi, and Iran was going to translate meaningfully into something between China, Russia, and Ukraine, given that China was not going to expend political capital on trying to get Russia to make concessions, and given the situation between the two parties, I think that was mistaken. But I I think if you were expecting a narrative to come out of the, the trip Following the Saudi-Iranian deal, that you know China is now turning into some great global broker. Um, I and, and short of a remarkably surprising twist after the phone call um, with Zelensky this week, I think we're we're still in a phase on Chinese diplomacy where they've been very deft in the way they handled the Saudi-Iranian deal, but their interests fundamentally um, uh, and the way they see the world, the way they see the struggle with the United States, um, has has not changed um so fundamentally and there'll be parts of that that may involve a bit of peace brokering um but a lot of it's going to involve uh, block building as well um and Russia's very much at the center of that
0: and to what extent andrew um, as somebody who's been kind of looking at what uh, china's footprint in different regions do you think there are lessons to be learned from from the way the middle east is working certainly when i talk to to chinese uh, middle east experts they do think this is quite you know could be an interesting Um, precursor to what a post-Western world would look like because obviously we've seen strategic intent from the US to pull back and to change the role that it plays in the Middle East. And that has created this vacuum, both for the activism of regional powers, which um, is where we started with Saudi and Iran, finding new roles for themselves, for Russia, for Turkey, for, for India, everyone sort of piling into the Middle East. It's a genuinely kind of multipolar um, uh, region. But also, China has been filling some of that vacuum. It's not trying to replace the US, but it's doing things which would have been unthinkable 10 years ago in this kind of constellation. And some of the the sort of Chinese Middle Eastern experts are kind of uh, arguing that this might be, you know, what happens in other parts of the world as, as power shifts from, from the West to the rest. And you get, you know, a, a messier situation than either a, a sort of bipolar world or western hegemony do, do you think that that's just the the preoccupation of the the middle east scholars in china or do you think that other people are kind of looking at this and drawing some lessons for Chinese grand strategy.
3: I mean, they've been waiting for this, the, the Chinese Middle East scholars, for, for some time. This is, I mean, the the fact that China is really stepping up um, politically and, and, and is, is kind of starting to operate more strategically in, in the region is, is certainly significant. I mean, I think anyone who's been watching this over a long arc has been sort of waiting for this moment. And I mean, there's the Middle East component of, of this that we, we can talk about. But when you're looking at this on the wider landscape, China's diplomatic economic and military efforts in um because i i think the military and intelligence dimensions of of all of these um, issues are also moving into a different phase with China. We're seeing China, when it comes to things like global basing, um, moving into a, a, a qualitatively different period of how it's handling that in, in all sorts of different regions of the world. In Africa in the in the Pacific, um, we'd already seen it to a certain extent in the Middle East. I mean, we're, we're seeing a different phase of, of what China's security relationships with the, the rest of the world uh, look like. The, the interesting thing in this instance was, of course, that it was the Saudis initially and and then latterly with with the Iranians that did turn to China to to ask them to come in and, and play this role and and I think there there are going to be cases in which you you see more of that there are things that China's been able to bring to the table in in these sorts of negotiations there will be spaces where the UK where the US chooses to play a diminished role versus the one that it played in the past um, there will be relationships that China has with various actors that it can use and bring to play differently um, and if. The actors in some of these regions see utility in involving China. There will be points in which it's willing to to embrace that. Um, it's harder in some of the areas in which it doesn't have the depth of experience. I think this was the additional surprise about this uh, deal, um, in, in a sense. This is outside China's comfort zone. They were able to do North Korea. They're able to do Myanmar. Um, uh, dealing with the complexities of the Middle East is not something that Chinese diplomacy has been particularly absorbed with. They're still feeling their way into this. Um, I do wonder uh, still whether if they'd been kind of dealing with this from the very start and um, whether they would have been as comfortable with that as dealing with it in the later stages of the process. So I'm not sure that this is yet a transition moment, but we are going to see and we are already seeing a different phase of, of Chinese diplomatic, economic and um, military engagement, particularly across the developing world. Um, But all of it still comes back to this, this wider framework that China sees, which is encirclement and containment by the West, the critical focal points of Chinese efforts now being about building coalitions, friendships and alignments across the developing world uh, in particular. Um, in the Saudi and Iranian case, I think there's also interest in, in issues around things like building sanctions-resilient financial architecture and, and, and things like that. Um, I, I, and both states that occupy an important role in that, whether it's on dollar-denominated oil trade or, of course, uh, the long-standing uh, Iranian uh, role under under Western sanction. Uh, so I think this isn't necessarily a, a harbinger of, of a new global order. I think one can be Somewhat, uh, I think the the level of significance attached to the Chinese involvement in this deal, I, I I still think can be can be somewhat overblown. But it's indicative of areas that China had not been willing to tread into, and the willingness of 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 certain actors across the developing world to look to use China in a different way, including poking at the United States. Going back to to Julian's point, which I think was an important part of this as well. Everyone understands that this contest is playing out across the world, and there are points. Um, in which certain levels of diplomatic economic and even military engagement with china um elicits different kind of qualities of response from from washington and i think that's the challenge on the on on the u.s side that they're facing as well how not to kind of Run around doing whack-a-mole pushback jobs against every single thing that they see from uh, they see China doing, and I think they've been relatively measured in in the response. For instance, to to this deal, um, partly for that reason. That's a really
1: interesting issue. Mark is is the kind of the extent to which this is seen through a kind of a regional or a kind of global order lens i think kind of there's going to be a lot of talk about china creating blocks and 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 kind of the great power competition um which will create hostility to this kind of chinese growing influence um but but you know from a from a western perspective and and through a more narrow regional lens there are a lot of reasons to say well frankly you know Let's question whether this is really such a bad thing. If the Chinese have reached, have been able to support a deal that we've all wanted for a long time, that is going to help regional stability, um, that is going to help secure kind of global energy markets. Um, is that such a bad thing? Is it such a bad thing if actually China gets sucked more into kind of the mess of his Middle Eastern politics and allows others to pull back a bit? And I think this is, you know, there, there's a strategic tactical dilemma here, strategic and tactical in terms of how we one responds to this, you know, in terms of potentially both kind of wanting to take the benefits of it while simultaneously kind of competing against China and at the great Kind of at the global level and certainly from a regional perspective i think we and a, and a kind of a lot of of others are, are quite kind of welcoming of this deal and of the chinese role including to speak to andrew's point because one shouldn't overstate the chinese role you know they're not coming in here and suddenly kind of dominating them at least they are still going to struggle in so many ways to exert their regional influence let's take the good but let's not overstate the extent to which china is now calling the shots
0: That seems like a very nuanced place to end this podcast. We're going to carry on the discussion about China's global role and peacemaking ambitions next week when we're going to look more specifically at the Xi Putin uh, exchanges and China's lessons, which is drawing from the Ukraine war. But for now, I think that's all that we have time for in this podcast, except for one more thing, which is our bookshelf segment. Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So
1: I am just finishing up a book called Aftermath about the um, life and the fallout of the Third Reich. Uh, 1945 1955 so about it's a social history of of kind of Germany right after the end of World War II going through the ways in which kind of German society um, responded to the war and, and recognized or mostly didn't I guess recognize kind of the, their own kind of an involvement in the Nazi regime um, and it's, it's, it's kind of quite interesting for me my father was born in Germany in 1942 and, and grew up in this post-World uh, War II era so it's a kind of a an insight into an era that, that I don't know much about, but which has a personal connection. And I should say who the author is. It's, it's a um, Harold Jana, a German historian. This has been translated into to English, but a really evocative kind of intimate take on, on Germany after the war. Fantastic. What about you, Cinzia?
2: I'm also reading a, a book about Germany, in particular about Berlin. It's called Berlin, the story of a city. And it's by Barney Weitzpunner. And uh, it's it's really interesting. It's from the foundation of berlin until basically uh today and you can really see how the city has changed while some things remain the same and in particular the berlin Umwille that is uh, live alive and kicking uh today
0: fantastic what about you andrew uh, so i
3: thought i'd pick a book that since i'm deputizing for for Janka, that both of us were were reading um, uh, and that's economists at war um, by Alan Bollard, which spans a not vastly dissimilar period to the one that Julian was just talking about, this 1935 to, to 55. But um, it's got an interesting suite that is not just looking at the US and the Europeans, but also looks at Japan through this phase, China, and, and some of the key economic figures, finance ministers, decision makers, advisors, and all the kind of the, the economics of wartime um, across this entire period, whether it's sanctions, economic espionage, or kind of the mobilization of resources around war. Um, this is actually tapped by the fact that the, the author has a new book about to come out on economists during the, the Cold War and and uh, economic ideologies during the Cold War and the battles through that time. So this is out already. Um, the Cold War book, I think, appears in uh, August or, or or something like that. And that's Alan Pollard.
0: You heard it here first. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully by heading to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on and subscribing to future episodes. And while you're there, please do give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help bring other people to the pod. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Julian Barnes-Dacey, Cinzia Bianco, Andrew Small, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of the podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Mireya faro